Harley Quinn is a screw-loose Avenger who suggests Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill films crossed with Ryan Reynolds in Deadpool with a nod to Juliette Lewis and Natural Born Killers. Woo, that's a lot. Owen Gleiberman from Variety talking about Birds of Prey. One of the movies we're reviewing here on Cinephile, The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. It came out February 7th. It's now on HBO, which is where I saw it. Also reviewing hot off the presses, Disney Plus, the one and only Ivan. Nobody loves gorillas like my son Shaz. So this is a huge early birthday present for him. A couple of months away from when he turns four. All in on gorillas. We have a gorilla movie on Disney Plus. And just for dad, I get Brian Cranston and Sam Rockwell voices Ivan and Helen Mirren and Danny DeVito and Angelina Jolie. Wow, this is great news. And also a review of Oliver Stone's memoir, Chasing the Light. And uh, we're going to talk a lot of Oliver Stone. In fact, Oliver Stone, Mount Rushmore of his greatest films. And my man Rags time is back. Uh, Rags is going to talk about the fact he's so money and he doesn't even know it. That's right. Swingers, one of the all-time great movies. Uh, Rags rewatched it, wants to talk about it. So that's what we're going to have here on Rags time. As always, please do support the podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, and please do follow us at CinephilePod and Adnan S. Verk. Uh, really nice words here from Ben47031. Great analysis. Always honest, insightful, without ever coming off as pretentious or glib. The snappy pace in production makes it fun and easy to listen to. I appreciate the variety of topics covered. New movies, but also movie news, interviews, all-time rankings, looking back at old movies. I appreciate that. Ben and Doc Lou Iowa recommend listening to the Big Picture Pod on Oliver Stone. Look forward to next week. Yeah, Oliver Stone, by the way, great podcast. My guy, Scott Feinberg, the best. Hollywood Reporter, excellent. Hour-plus interview. At one point, Oliver Stone gets testy. Because Feinberg, noted lefty, brings up the fact that Oliver Stone thinks Vladimir Putin's a good guy. And Stone gives him a, Jesus Christ, can anybody disagree in today's world? It's an excellent listen. <laughs> along, with, along with insights of Platoon and Scarface, Oliver Stone getting pissed off about the fact he likes Putin. Uh, it's a very good listen. Check that out in The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, but let's dive into what we got this time around. And that's Birds of Prey, the fantabulous emancipation of Harley Quinn. It's open season on Harley Quinn when her explosive breakup with the Joker puts a big fat target on her back. Unprotected and on the run, Quinn faces the wrath of narcissistic crime boss Black Mask, his right-hand man Victor Zaz, and every other thug in the city. But things soon even out for Harley when she becomes unexpected allies with three deadly women, Huntress, Black Canary, and Renee Montoya. Yes, I'm not crazy about superhero fans. Yes, of course, I'm on Team Scorsese when it comes to too many superhero movies, oversaturated, etc. But I gotta be honest. I liked it. Maybe a big part of it is the undeniable charisma and intelligence of Margot Robbie, former guest here on Cinephile. She was awesome when she was talking about I, Tanya. If you've never seen it, go back in the archives and listen to the interview and watch her. But she's always charming. Like I said, charismatic. She explodes off the screen. She's physical. I mean, she's got the uh, agility to pull off all these stunts. And yet, like I said, has that wink at the camera, that absolutely killer smile, like a Cheshire cat. She's joined by this array of... Uh, female badasses, Rosie Perez, noted fight fan, always see her on DAZN. Uh, she plays Renee Montoya, who plays a cop straight out of the 80s. And in fact, they make fun of the fact that she sounds like an 80s cop. At one point, she's being upset. She's in a meeting. And she wears a shirt that says, I shaved my balls for this, which the fact she wears that shirt for 12 minutes of the movie is hysterical. I just imagine, you know, offset Rosie's like, oh, are, we, are we still doing that scene? Okay, I got to put the, I shaved my balls for this shirt on again. Okay, great. You've also got Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing a uh, the attractive and, and terrifying Helena Bertinelli, the huntress. Journey Smollett, alone for the ride, is Black Canary. And Ewan McGregor playing the bad guy against type as Roman Sionis. Uh, he's got a couple of scenes where he's pretty creepy. He likes his Botox, and he likes ripping people's faces off. So he has a good time hamming it up. But 
Listen, the reason I liked it is the DC universe is generally one that's fairly dark, especially lately, when you look at the wildly overrated and overhyped Joker. The good news with Birds of Prey is it's light and confectionery. It's bright, it's snazzy, it's gaudy, it's got some terrific action sequences. I thought the action choreography was the best part of the movie. I mean, a lot of uh, homages, perhaps to The Matrix, perhaps to John Woo, with the slow motion and the intercutting and speeding the film up and uh, so on and so forth. Kathy Yan is the director, but I thought she really brought a lot of vervent energy to it. I don't think the plot's particularly interesting. The ending, um, I thought, could have been a little more powerful. But listen, bad girl empowerment film, that's what this is. And if you like Margot Robbie and you like some ass-kicking and you like some girl power, I think you could do worse than Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Joe, you also saw it with your brother. What did you think? You know what? I don't know if it was my expectations just being so low after seeing the movie Suicide Squad that I was expecting less from it. But I, I agree with you. I, I kind of liked it a lot. Uh, I thought the like structure of it, the exposition, the voiceover work worked really well. And Margot Robbie, just a bona fide star carrying the movie. Ewan McGregor playing a great villain. I was honestly expecting it to be like a D minus type movie, but it 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 uh, was a pleasant surprise. And anything with Ali Wong, I will jump on. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good movie, right? Decent popcorn flick right now. If you missed it in theaters in February, you need a pleasant diversion. I think you could do worse than Birds of Prey. Like I said, especially things like the production design, the costume design. Like not to get overly nerdy, but I thought they really did a good job with that. You know, it reminds you of like a a comic book movie like Dick Tracy from 1990 in terms of. I just think so many of these superhero movies now tread that path of being uh, dark and grim and grimy. And this is actually a movie that's, you know, kind of bright and fun, along with, like I said, a whole lot of violence. I mean, it's, it's, it is an R-rated movie because some of that uh, bone crunching is awfully memorable and not for the squeamish. Also, a couple of good one-liners, too. I think one of the cops says to Rosie Perez, you, you smell like a dead rat's asshole, which is uh, clearly a smell none of us ever want to emulate. Uh, Moving on, the one and only Ivan. It's on Disney+. Plus. While trapped in a cage, the exit of Big Top Mall and Video Arcade, a gorilla named Ivan teams up with a caring elephant named Stella to piece together his mysterious past and hatch a cunning escape from their shared captivity. Thea Shawrock directs, the great Brian Cranston plays Mac. He is the ringleader. And maybe he's a little bit exploitive because he's using these animals for his own benefit here with his little circus. But he also is a caring guy. He literally took care of this gorilla ever since he was a baby. He would bathe the gorilla. He would sleep with the gorilla. He's petting him. So he's obviously a caring, nurturing sort. This is a long way from Walter White, uh, certainly for Brian Cranston. Sam Rockwell, tremendous actor playing Ivan the gorilla, always has a bit of a bemused tone. Uh, and it's a very sweet movie. I recommend it, especially, obviously, for kids. I don't know if you're a grown man, if you're going to enjoy it as much, but my kids loved it, particularly the aforementioned Chaz De Niro, who loves gorillas. Danny DeVito, of course, plays Bob, uh, very predictable, playing the dog, who is uh, kind of a smart aleck. He's got that very uh, inimitable Danny DeVito accent from Jersey. But it's a sweet movie, you know? It's about a gorilla and this elephant and pets who are locked in captivity for the circus. And they think life's okay, but they dream of escape one day. And the one day they try to escape, they actually get to see the freeway. And all of a sudden, they get lured back in. And, you know, it really makes you feel sad for a lot of these animals who are locked in captivity. And the best part, in many ways, is it's based on a true story. There was a gorilla, the one and only Ivan, who was locked in captivity for 27 years, but was given a bunch of crayons and actually did some painting. That's, uh, without giving away the hook, that's, that's the main appeal of this is if you're thinking, why do I care about a gorilla being locked up? Well, this gorilla was an awfully smart gorilla. Take this for the gorillas, very intelligent animals. Very intelligent. You give this gorilla a bunch of crayons and painting, all of a sudden he's doing his own painting. So the one and only Ivan was actually an artist. He was the Picasso 
of Animal Kingdom, as it were. And I think it's a very sweet story. You know, there's so many kids' movies now, they're very busy. I mean, you watch animated movies and they're busy. There's just stuff everywhere. It's very frenetic. It's very feverish. You never really get a second to pause. You know, when you're watching any of these shows, whether it's, you know, Paw Patrol and Disney Junior or any assortment of shows. So the reason I like the one and only Ivan is very old school. You got talking animals, but there's no busy cuts. It's nice, naturalistic storytelling. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. You know, it's like old school, like Harry and the Hendersons, back of my youth. I think it's a very sweet movie. Um, as Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com says, by the way, Christy, former guest on Cinephile, it's certainly harmless enough if you already have a Disney Plus subscription. I do. But it's far from the greatest show on earth. Well, that's fine. Um, what else we got here? Mark Feeney of Boston Globe. It's alternately sappy, peppy, and uplifting. The temptation to watch the sound off is considerable, though that would be a disservice to the talents of the voice cast. Uh, Mark Feeney of Boston Globe. I liked it. Three Maple Leafs, the one and only Ivan. How about Brian Cranston's career post-Breaking Bad, Joe? He's now making a family-friendly movie, which will do huge numbers, I'm sure, on Disney+. Plus. Oh, I, I absolutely love it. And I think he's coming off of a network, off of Broadway, and doing such an intense role. Now he's coming out with this uplifting movie. Uh, and it, I know... I know you liked it, but more importantly, what did your son think of it? Alyssa, Shaz was enamored of it. I mean, the fact it's on Disney Plus is great news because you can watch it every day. We've already seen it twice. We're going to see it at least twice a week. The other big news for young Shaz uh, is Doolittle, which I know got torched. 14% Rotten Tomatoes. It came out in January, so there's no way. Back when you could actually go to the movies, if I take him and his three brothers, we get popcorn slushies. I mean, you're looking at 90 to to $100. I'm not doing this for Robert Downey Jr. mailing it in. But... It's now available for rent. Three bucks, baby. So we had a gorilla one, too. Doolittle, if you've seen the trailer, Robert Downey Jr., uh, with an assorted of animals. Yes, an homage to Dr. Doolittle, the movie we all know with Eddie Murphy. But, Joe, we got, we got a, a featured gorilla in that movie, and then there's a, a gorilla starring role. Shaz is over the moon. Let me tell you something right now. Oh, man. Kids absolutely love talking animals. They, they love, love talking animals. Do you guys have any pets? We don't actually. In your I'm house? not a big pet guy. No, I've, as, as Larry David once said, people are either pet people or kid people. And Larry David is an anomaly because he doesn't like either. So I, I'm all <laughs> in on, I'm all in on kids, which is why I have four kids. I don't have any interest. You know, some people have like you know two kids, two dogs. Okay, I get that. You like a little bit of each, but I, I got four kids, so I have no time for any animals. And I'm just, I, I'm not like a clean freak, Joe. But I mean, dogs are very hairy, and I get it. Man's best friend. I understand that, but. I mean, there's loud. There's, it's just a lot of work, right? If you love animals, I totally get it. I respect it. If I had to go animal, I would go dog over a cat. But I don't believe, did, did the Engelbrechts, did you guys have pets growing up? Yeah, we had, well, my dad, for some reason, was really into beta fish, like Japanese fighting fish. I don't know why. We had maybe a dozen of those throughout maybe a two-year period. But we had a Cocker Spaniel growing up, and I remember being a kid and watching Dr. Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy version, and just thinking... Wow, I think my dog can talk, but just isn't doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> just a dog that's mailing it in. I totally get that. Uh, the one and exactly. only Ivan. It is on Disney+. Plus. Before we get to Oliver Stone's memoir, I wanted to mention a happy birthday to Sean Connery. We're taping this on Tuesday. He is 90 years of age. He is the greatest James Bond ever, but my favorite performance of Sean Connery is as Malone, Academy Award winner, Best Supporting Actor for Brian De Palma's The Untouchables which we recently did De Palma on Mount Rushmore, and a tremendous script by the great David Mamet. Mamet script, De Palma directing Sean Connery. Unbelievable. I mean, De Niro is Capone, chewing scenery. Kevin Costner, straight arrow, Elliot Ness. Andy Garcia, nice performance. But Sean Connery's amazing. I mean, just what are you prepared to do now? He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. Here endeth the lesson. 
I mean, it's just, that's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Happy birthday to Sean Connery. I can't believe the fact he's 90 years old. If you haven't seen The Untouchables or haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it again. It's awesome. Rags time is on the way along with some entertainment news. But first, Chasing the Light, writing, directing, and surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the movie game. A new book by Oliver Stone. Took me three and a half days to read Jim Carrey's book, three and a half weeks to read Charlie Kaufman's book, two weeks to read Oliver Stone's book. What I found uninteresting is the first hundred pages, which is about him and his parents. His dad, Jewish, aloof, fairly well off, mom, French, an artiste, free spirit, uh, dad having a lot of affairs, mom looking the other way, well, I'm European, it's okay, this is the way men are. Mom has a torrid affair, dad loses his mind, they get divorced. In many ways, Oliver closer to his father, even though I still don't really understand how that works, because the dad was the one who was a rampant womanizer, but mom has this like torrid affair with a younger guy who was, I guess, staying at the country house, and dad loses his mind, and away we go. That's the first 100 pages. All due respect to Oliver Stone, I don't really care about that stuff. I want to know about Platoon. I'm here for Platoon, okay? Even, and there's a couple of, you know, holes in my resume. I've never seen Midnight Express, which he won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. I've never seen Salvador, which, I mean, if you read the book, and I encourage you all to do so, it is vivid, his uh, dissection of how challenging that was. He's shooting Salvador, wanting to do any Americans care what's happening in Central America. James Woods is a giant pain in the ass. The stories of Jimmy Woods just being an absolute diva are legendary. They've got no money. They're pulling funding. The government's upset. People are getting sick. I mean, it's just hell. And that was before he shot Platoon. And Platoon he's shooting as a former Vietnam vet going back to the horror of what he saw previously. They're training Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, and there's infighting there. And again, they don't have any money, familiar stories. The biggest thing from reading this book is if you want to work in movies, you've got to have perseverance times a thousand. That's what I got away from this book. Is Anybody who works in movies is crazy for even attempting to work in movies because the chances of failure are enormous and the amount of rejection is astronomical. There's one year, Oliver Stone's like two years, he wrote like 20 scripts. He's going 0 for 20. He's just grinding out scripts and then nobody wants to buy them and he's got no money and that's just life for years. And you think, oh, pretty young. He was, you know, 40 years old. He won Best Director Platoon. But for years prior to that, it was misery. And you get a chance, the movie called The Hand, which was the first movie he directed, Michael Caine, never seen it, huge bomb. Nobody else saw it. He writes Midnight Express, as I said, after a bunch of other failed scripts. That wins an Oscar, even though it got mixed reviews from the critics. Now all of a sudden, bam, he's on board. The script for Scarface, legendary. And De Palma was fairly inviting about allowing him on set. But of course, Oliver Stone wanted to direct it. The studio's like, no, you're not directing this. What are you, crazy? We're getting to Palma. Originally, it was going to be Sidney Lumet. Now, I've talked a lot about Scarface in the previous Cinefile, so I'm not going to do a whole lot of it now, other than to say, if you're a big Scarface fan like me, you will love reading all about that because he tells stories about just the frustrations of, of seeing a work that you've scripted and then having, again, the government, because the Cubans were, were involved, you know, Castro was saying, they're, oh, it's, it's, it's pro-Cuba, pro-Castro, they had to leave Miami, had to shoot it in L.A. And De Palma himself, which Don't are big fans, comes across as a very interesting guy. He said De Palma was overweight, always wearing the same khaki jacket, and just moved very slow. He said very early on, he could tell Scarface, he's like, oh my God, like this is going to take forever. We've got, I can't remember the shooting days. Let's say 60 shooting days. He goes, we're going to hit 80. No problem. De Palma takes forever. And Pacino, a guy who loves the theater, who loves the stage, where you get one chance, something about Al, it takes him like four takes where he gets going. Five takes, seven takes. Okay, now he's feeling good. So he was like the frustration of seeing De Palma taking forever. And Pacino, who just needs like four or five takes to get the motor revved, 
I mean, he was, he was losing his mind, but he was very grateful as a screenwriter that he got to be there because, again, screenwriters oftentimes are not allowed on set. Hey, thanks for the script, Jackass. See you later. No, no. De Palma respected him. He had him there. Pacino really liked him. No, I want Oliver here on set. I want to be able to go through stuff with him. Great. And by the way, Pacino and Oliver Stone almost did Born on the Fourth of July together. In fact, they were doing rehearsals for it. Pacino was working on it, had met Ron Kovic, and then the funding fell through. So that was like in the late 70s. How about this? Platoon came out in 86. He wrote the script in 76. Took him 10 years. Born on the 4th of July, came out in 89. He had the script in 79. He thought it was a go. Pacino was going to star in it, and he was doing literally work on rehearsals. And instead, that was gone. So the frustrations of, of, of Oliver Stone were paramount. But as I said, the Scarface stories are very interesting. And then, of course, Platoon, which was you know, a labor of love. And everybody kept saying, hey, listen, nobody's going to want to watch this. Like, dude, Vietnam is the war we lost. Why would anybody want to relive that? And then The Deer Hunter was a huge hit in 78. He goes, all right, here we go. Right? He wrote Platoon in 76. Nobody wants to do it. Deer Hunter 78, best, direct, best picture. Oh, my God. Wait, we're in. We like war movies. Okay. Apocalypse Now, 1979. All right, here we go. But again, funding, funding, funding. The frustrations just kept happening over and over for Oliver Stone in terms of trying to get his movie made. But the bottom line is this. If I could be mean for a second, Oliver Stone hasn't made a great movie in 20 plus years. Like I would say his last great movie, maybe even great is strong. I think any given Sunday is a pretty good movie. All right. Pacino inch by inch speech is great. Obviously I love football. I think it's very kinetic. I'll say it's very good to great. That was 1999. I think Snowden was a miss. I think W was a miss. Um, I think Savages was a miss. Like from 83 to 99, Oliver Stone was like, watch out, man. Like this guy is bringing it. As I said, I haven't seen Salvador, but Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Wall Street, Natural Born Killers, JFK. God, JFK was like the cultural movie of 1991. Everyone's talking about this. Back and to the left. Garrison, Kevin Costner, three plus hours. Nixon, a movie which I love. We're going to talk later about that, Mount Rushmore. That's 1995. I mean, all even U-Turn is a really good noir film, 1997, which I like a lot. And after that, it's like, dude, a lot of misses. World Trade Center, as I mentioned, also not a great film. Nicolas Cage came out in 06. And since the last few years, he's been making documentaries, which again, the book only focuses on until 86 when he won the Best Director Oscar. But just in summarizing Oliver Stone's career, now he's, you know, he does documentaries. He loves Putin. You know, I haven't seen that documentary. I know my cousin likes it a lot, but whatever. Point is this. He's kind of veered away from all that made him great. But back in the day, guy was pretty good. Let me tell you a couple of stories here from the book. This was when he met Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder is one of my favorite directors. If you know movies, you know Billy Wilder. We're going to have rags to him later on. But you want to get rags going, talk to him about Sunset Boulevard. Billy Wilder film. Amazing. Uh, Ace in the Hole, also recently reviewed here on uh, Cinephile. So Billy Wilder, when he was talking about potentially doing Reversal of Fortune, which again, we've reviewed recently here on Cinephile a few months ago, right? Jeremy Irons won Best Actor. Well, Oliver Stone actually was a co-producer of it. And at one point was thinking about who he's going to get to do it. So he talks to Billy Wilder, then 80 and retired the mental vigor of 50. Wilder was sardonic and tart. He said, every script they bring me is a beautiful woman, but if I don't get an erection, there's nothing I can do. He shared stories of Europe in the 1920s and told us what he really wanted to do. If we truly believed he could still direct a great film, of course we believe. From his shelf, he pulled out a coffee table book on La Petomane, P-E-T-O-M-A-N-E, an 1890s Frenchman infamous for his musical farting on stage. Wilder, thankfully, would never make that movie. That's unbelievable. This is one of the greatest directors of all time. He wanted to make a movie about a guy farting. Ed and I did go on to co-produce Reversal in 1990 with Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, who won an Oscar for his role. Later, when his thought process for Wall Street, he was talking to this guy, and by the way, Oliver Stone very open about his cocaine usage. 
I mean, just off the charts coke use, like so many in the 80s. Eventually, he kicked it. But he used a lot of that material for Scarface, and that's why Pacino is just snorting like a maniac. He's talking to one of his friends who was making a lot of money at the time. He said, you know, ultimately, they're just looking how to fuck you. He will befriend you to befuck you. The name of the game is he wants to explode inside you. This is what Wall Street's all about. Money was sexual to these young men, and a successful act of seduction was rape. It was man as beast. These young players loved the thrashing and the blood. It was a million miles from my father's stately, sober investment world. What the hell happened to the modesty associated with having money? As I said, I don't want to give away too many of the stories, but what I do find fascinating is after all the stress and the trauma and a couple of divorces along the way, when he actually gets platoon made, I mean, you can actually really feel the relief on the page. Because see this for Oliver Stone. He may be bombastic. He may be arrogant. But his prose is exceptional. As a book, I said, wow, this guy's a hell of a writer. I mean, he's won Oscars for his screenplays, and he's also just an excellent writer. And somebody who's very passionate and introspective and refreshingly honest. And reading Chasing the Light, as I said, you get the perseverance of Oliver Stone, you get the frustration, but you also get the sensitivity and the moments where he was even down on himself and didn't believe he could do it. Which is why when he actually ended up making a triumph in Platoon, as I said, you feel that joy for him. Like, I, I love Platoon. It's probably my favorite war film. I think it's an incredible book. And he said when he finally got it made, he didn't know if it was going to be successful. It was being dumped in a couple of theaters over Christmas. People are saying nobody wants to see a war movie. And all of a sudden, here come the reviews. Surprisingly detailed letters from men asking if the bloody attack in the end of the film was based on what happened January 1st, 1968. Uh, our company commander, a man I barely known, got in touch with me, told me how moved he was. And Hollywood, I was flattered with praise way beyond my Midnight Express experience. Steven Spielberg wrote me, it's more than a movie. It's like being in Vietnam. Marty Scorsese was quoted as saying, it's good to see our country can still produce directors like him. He has a unique style and he's become a real personal filmmaker. No one else is doing the things he's doing. He's out there by himself. Ilya Kazan had told someone I knew that Platoon was the film of the year, which was most heartening. Even Brian De Palma, Normally, a cold man was quoted as saying, seeing platoon get through the system makes the soul feel good. Jackie Kennedy wrote me a beautiful letter. Your film has changed the direction of a country's thinking. It will always stand there as a landmark. By the way, Scorsese, very pivotal in Oliver Stone's life. NYU Film School. One of Oliver Stone's teachers in the early 70s was Marty Scorsese. And he made a very short film about war and the impact of war and platoon because Oliver Stone was a Vietnam vet. In many ways, if you don't know, he is the Charlie Sheen character. Um, Upper class upbringing, rich kid, college kid, volunteers for the war to do some good. And he came back and had to deal with all the trauma and sadness. And he made that short film. And Scorsese took one look at it and said to the class, that right there is a filmmaker. Right? You never forget those people in life who believe in you. And Marty saw that short film and goes, well, this guy right, who made this? Oliver Stone? Who are you? You're Oliver Stone? Well, you right here, sir, are a filmmaker. Because I can tell this is personal. This is coming from your heart. And that's why Platoon is such a great film because, of course, it's coming from his heart because it's his own experiences. There's a couple of stories about Pacino, one of which I was uh, saddened by because I adore Al, is that when they were editing Scarface, he was disagreeing with Marty Bregman. Pacino was, who's the producer. Marty Bregman, if you know anything about Pacino, very close to Al. Oliver Stone describes it as a love-hate relationship. So Bregman was you know, producing Scarface and Dog Day Afternoon, but very controlling, which would piss Pacino off. So Pacino saw the edit and didn't like it. He calls Oliver Stone, you got to see the edit of Scarface. He sees the first edit, he doesn't like it either. So Pacino tells him all the issues he has. Oliver Stone's like, yeah, I hear you. Oliver Stone then tells Marty Bregman, hey, listen, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. Marty Bregman explodes on Oliver Stone. 
Like, I'm going to kill you. Don't ever say another word to me again. This has nothing to do with you. You're the writer. Back up, blah, blah, blah. And, and Oliver Stone's thinking, well, I'm doing this because I'm sticking up for Al. And the Pacino never took his side. And Oliver Stone said he was very saddened by this. He was blindsided that, you know, Pacino basically was like, hey, fight for the film. I fought for the film. Producer cuts me off at the knees. And Pacino doesn't say anything. Doesn't even say thank you or like, hey, thanks for trying or, or anything. Or, yes, I agree with Oliver. So that was odd how that ended. So then after Platoon, on the plane to New York after the Globes, I saw Al Pacino. He looked older than I'd remembered. Older than I remembered him from our strange partnership on Scarface. When he asked for my support, but never gave me his. He seemed distantly happy for me and said, you've grown into your success. You deserve it. You've been around. He, on the other hand, was openly disdainful of what was happening. I'm getting my head cut off in movies like Revolution, Author, Author, and Cruising, on which he'd had a difficult time with Billy Friedkin who was originally going to direct Born on the Fourth of July. Pacino is now working on the fifth writer's draft of a picture that would never get made and would become the embodiment of all the defeats we face in a volatile profession. But Pacino was still the street hamlet to me. Al didn't miss much with those big shiny eyes and a savagely instinctive actor's radar for the very moment he was in. I find this to be a most crucial aspect of acting. We communicate with our eyes, Napoleon said. My own eyes were always far too small for the screen. But nature's choice pleased me. Like, how good is that writing? Pacino, a street Hamlet? Are you kidding? It's incredible. And for the record, Oliver Stone said, <laughs> Al needed a lot of takes on Scarface, but when they made Any Given Sunday, no issue. He's like, yeah, two takes. Al was ready to go. He goes, I don't know why. At that point in his life, he just needed a lot of takes. But we actually had a very good working relationship when we did Any Given Sunday. And whatever ill will from, um, from Born on the Fourth of July, Falling Apart, or Scarface was then gone. One more story for you. Marlon Brando calls Oliver Stone and says, call me Marlon. Platoon was a watershed film that will sweep the Oscars. He understood the dilemma that most fascinated me. Would my protagonist, myself, cross the line into immoral behavior, into sadism even? I kept thinking, he sounds just like Brando. His voice from on the waterfront, but it was a long call. He meandered to his second point. He wanted me to work with him on his pet project about the infamous 1864 massacre at Sand Creek in Colorado, an outgrowth of his passion for the cause of Native Americans. He launched into a fascinating monologue with the visceral power of the one he did in Last Tango in Paris, to butter up your ass like a pig. Vividly describing how U.S. soldiers took the Native women and cut their tits and cunts off, stretched them across the pommel of their saddles. His, the way he spoke, he was doing it himself with such rage, pure savage cruelty. His anger was real, but I knew that after Platoon and Salvador, I didn't want to do this again. I wanted an escape from cruelty. And so I said to him with a short thrust of the knife, as he said to me, a short thrust of the knife to the belly is better than one up the back. I'm not too keen on doing it. Later, I told him I was going to do a film called Greed, which ended up becoming Wall Street. Uh, and I said to him, it was an honor that you called me. Growing up, you're one of my idols. He laughed, I believe, moved. How many more times can you have a moment like that? I mean, that's just very, very cool. Uh, last page, the last little bit of it. Like I said, he wins Best Director for the Oscar. He thanks Bob Richardson, Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, even Jimmy Woods for giving him hell in Salvador. 30 years now, I look back and realize I had no idea then of the storm that was coming, but I did know instinctively that I had reached a moment in time whose glory would last me forever. Chasing the Light from Oliver Stone. I highly recommend it. I'm going to give it three and a half Maple Leafs. The first 100 pages, like I said, I don't care that much about his parents. But once we get into life, Paul Schrader, one of my favorite directors, wrote, Oliver Stone's story is a story of my generation writ large. And Spike Lee, Oliver Stone's narrative, his life story with the heartbreaks, the near misses, and finally the triumphs, is a Hollywood movie in himself. I thank Oliver for writing Chasing the Light, especially for my NYU grad film students. Joe, Oliver Stone, Chasing the Light. 
This book sounds absolutely incredible, especially, I mean, I think, especially with Martin Scorsese, that resonates with so many people when you're young and just starting out and someone actually believing with in, in you. But do you do you think that there's enough material in the back half of his career to do a follow-up of after he won's Best Picture to now? Or do you even think that, you know, with Hollywood so much more corporate and him having to go through all these trials and tribulations just to get movies made. Do you even think like an Oliver's own type director could come out in today's Hollywood? Ah, it's a great question, Joe. I think you could, but God, it seems incredibly difficult. And as hard as it was from then, I think it's even much harder now, as we know, where every movie is either superhero movies for $100 million, or you're getting you know independent movies made for a million bucks, or you're just doing stuff on TV, and you're making Watchmen, uh, which is as inventive as anything you'd normally see in a movie. So... Oliver Stone, I think in many ways you're right. He's almost like a last of the Mohicans. Like, think about his life. Like I said, a Vietnam veteran making a movie about Vietnam and personal filmmaking along the way and just very unvarnished in terms of his goals. And I hope there's a follow-up. I mean, listen, I can't wait to read about the other stuff. Like I said, Platoon's one of my favorite movies, so I love all that. But I want to read about JFK, Natural Born Killers, Any Given Sunday. I, I, I can only hope Oliver Stone will give us a sequel because he has had a very, very rich life. Uh, let's do some entertainment news, and then we're going to get to rags time. Kate Blanchett, Ewan McGregor, Tilda Swinton, and more rounding up the cast for Guillermo del Toro's Netflix Pinocchio movie. I just hear Pinocchio, and I say, God, I hope this turns out better than Roberto Benigni's Pinocchio movie. Geppetto, what a disaster that was. I mean, I love Life is Beautiful, La Vita Bella, but you get one shot. You win your Oscar, and all of a sudden you get one shot. Do whatever you want. What do you want to do, Roberto? I want to do Pinocchio. Gigantic bomb, see ya. Go back to Italy. Now, Del Toro obviously is a director of more renown, but still, if this doesn't work, watch out. They'll, they'll fillet Guillermo Del Toro. But he's got some good names. Hugh McGregor is Cricket, uh, David Bradley is Geppetto, and uh, as I mentioned, Kate Blanchett as well. So look forward to that. It's going to be on Netflix. Um, don't know when it's going to be released, but clearly Del Toro is a guy who loves uh, Pinocchio, just as Roberto Benigni does. How about this Batman news? Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton? Are you kidding me? That's right. Andy Muschietti directed DC film The Flash. Michael Keaton back as Batman, Ben Affleck back as Batman. Different versions of the Cape Crusader will be seen in the film. The Flash, a.k.a. Barry Allen, will reportedly be seen crashing into multiple dimensions where different versions of Batman will be found. Uh, earlier this year, Affleck told the New York Times he left the project due to personal and health issues, but now he's back, so this is a surprise. He said, I showed somebody the Batman script. They said, I think the script is good. I actually think you'll drink yourself to death if you go through what you just went through again. That was what he said previously, but apparently he's going to do it. And by the way, that separate project is The Batman. That's with Robert Pattinson set to take on that role. So The Flash, Affleck and Keaton, The Batman, Robert Pattinson. You can watch that trailer as well. And also as an aside, Tenet is going to be in theaters. Again, limited release, uh, reduced capacity, August 31st, September 1st, September 2nd. Joe's in New York. Uh, right now he's actually back home in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul. But uh, Joe obviously lives in New York. I live in Jersey. Theaters are not open here. I'm already looking. Looks like Connecticut is our go. All right? My former home state is going to be playing Tenet next week. So uh, hopefully you can find it. Here's what you do. Tenetfilm.com. T-E-N-E-T-F-I-L-M.com. That's what I did. Here's my zip code. Where's the nearest movie? Looks like 37 miles away, Danbury, Connecticut. Not bad. Hopefully I'll see it in IMAX. Right now, though, time for a little rags time. Ready, guys and gals, it's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. 
Uh, coming to us, I understand, from Minnesota, Scott Rogowski. Rags time is everywhere. I love it. You're traversing this entire great country of ours, aren't you? You're, you're tracking my road trip through this podcast. <laughs> right now, the land of 10,000 lakes, the land of Robert Zimmerman, a.k.a. <laughs> Bob, Bob Dylan, and the Prince, a.k.a. What's his real name? Prince. Prince Nelson. But, uh, yeah, I'm here. I'm here, and I am... I gotta say, not watching a lot of new movies once again, Adnan. <laughs> no, listen, I we, I got a review here, Rex. Somebody said to me, "Go, I love what you guys do. It's not just new movies. You talk about classic movies of the past." I'm like, "Yeah, the amount of people who say, hey, Polly Platt, I had no idea as well. Tell Rags good stuff. So let's keep it coming.' There you go. Well, I won't be pr- promoting any other podcast this time. <laughs> we'll keep this in house. But I do want to discuss a film that I rewatched just the other night because I happened to be going to Vegas. Vegas, baby, Vegas. I think you know where this is coming if you're listening. Of course, I rewatched Swingers, the 1996 classic. It's a classic now, almost 25 years old. I can't believe it. But this was a formative movie for me as a child of the 90s. I was 12 years old when this came out. And of course, I looked up to Vince Vaughn and John Favreau, the two main characters, as, you know, my future selves. I was already I was already identifying as John Favreau's character at the age of twelve. I should say that right now. Um, for those who haven't seen this film, I will give the brief synopsis. Adnan, of course, you've seen this. This is this is this truly is a classic. I think of our generation, and hopefully the younger generations are going to get on board because having watched it recently, it holds up. It really does. But the synopsis briefly is uh, John Favreau in his first role. And what I want to talk about really is how this movie, the small independent film, launched nearly a half dozen careers from behind the camera, in front of it. You got the director, Doug Lyman, who went on to do major things and still working, of course, but the Bourne Identity. And uh, he's doing the first movie filmed in space with Elon Musk and NASA. <laughs> this This is coming out. But Mr. and Mrs. Smith and... Uh, jumper. I mean, you know, big, big budget movies, action movies. But he started with this very small film, just about a couple of guys living in L.A. One of them, John Favreau, the main character, getting out of a breakup, six year relationship, and now it's been six months and she hasn't called him, hasn't spoken. And I can very much relate to that now because about six months ago I got out of a year long relationship and she hasn't spoken to me. But guess what? I'm over her. <laughs> unlike the character of Mikey, you are not leaving voice messages. Hi, it's Nikki. Leave a message. Oh, God. The Nikki scene. Yeah, that's just... As One the of the most cringe-inducing scenes ever. Right. As the kids today would say, hey, cringe. <laughs> but, you know, back then, I was relating to that. I was doing that. I was leaving voicemails to the Hannah Gellers of the world and the Sarah Liebers of the world. You know, these were my <laughs> middle school, high, high school crushes. And I am, probably should be using, let's call them Hannah Lieber and Sarah Geller, just to... I like the pseudonyms. We'll fix that in post. But uh, no, it's Favreau's broken up, despondent, sitting there crushed. His buddy Trent, Vince Vaughn, in one of his first movie roles, young, thin Vince Vaughn. Skinny. Lanky. Yeah. My goodness. He looks like he's 6'5", 165. Yes, just a string bean. He could be a pole vaulter. But he's, you know, a little more bloated these days. Oh. uh, Circa couples retreat. But uh, <laughs> post Jennifer Aniston on the breakup, the years yeah. have not been kind to him. Yeah, but this is uh, this is a whole new situation. This was really one of those you know first bromance movies that I can remember. Yeah. Um, 
you know, Apatow is all about that now. But this was uh, this was John Favreau, who actually, you know, he wrote Couples Retreat as well. You know, uh, if, <laughs> Favreau and Vaughn, they're real life friends. Ron Livingston in one of his first yeah, breakout roles terrific. also got his, his his career launched here. Had their grams in there. She had done a few things prior, but um, so many faces that are you know became familiar to moviegoers later on started with this movie here in '96. And Favreau and Vince Vaughn, they hit the road, man. He's broken up. Vince is like, you got to get out of here, baby. You're so money, you don't even know it. We're going to Vegas right then and there. In the middle of the night, they drive to Vegas. And that's one of the great scenes, too, in the car. because it's, it's Vegas! Just, Vegas! Vegas, yeah, because it's that spontaneity of the moment, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, let's do it. Let's do something crazy tonight. And then a few hours later, you're in the middle of Nevada, nice. like nice. still an hour and a half, two hours away from Vegas. Like, God, you know, the, the enthusiasm dies down. Vegas, baby, Vegas. Vegas. Baby. <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> But just all these very small moments that are so relatable, I think, to all people, but especially guys in their 20s, which is, you know, the age these guys were at the time. And anyway, you know, it really just comes down to this guy, John Farrah, Mikey, getting over his old relationship, trying to get out there in the dating scene in L.A. And, uh, you know, this is pre-Tinder, pre-internet, really. So you've got, yeah, you've got phone numbers on napkins. What a nostalgic throwback that is, writing your number down. Um, the pretending, whole, pretending he's going to rip up the phone number when he gets it. Yes. And just the whole party scene, which, gosh, now in the pandemic, that seems nostalgic. Well, Have I love ever, the guy who says this place is dead anyways. And both times the place is hopping. They're just yeah. saying that because they're not working out for them. Yeah. This place is dead so, anyways. So many quotable, uh, you know, potent potables, quote, notable quotables in this film. That was one of my favorites. This place is dead anyway. Uh, that's Charles. The, you know, the, the, but just, yeah, just the idea of going from party to party, hopping around. And look, Adnan, you like this movie particularly because of the homages to your directors, your favorites, Tarantino, Scorsese, the conversation they had. It's very meta, very self-aware as a filmmaker, Doug Lyman throwing these little touches in. You want to explain those parts? Yeah, I love that scene. So they're talking about how directors rip off other directors. Like, well, Tarantino's just ripping off Scorsese. And the next scene is them walking in slow motion, which is an homage or a ripoff of Tarantino Reservoir Dogs, which I wonder, Regs, watching it again, I'm like, how many people may not get that reference? If you're 18 to 20 going, why are they walking in slow motion? Oh, is that a reference? to? Well, I don't get that. Oh, that's Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Came in 92. Everybody had seen that because this movie was 96. So it's funny to me how dated it might be. But at the moment, it was perfectly timed. And then later on, they're going through the kitchen, which again, is a reference to Scorsese and Goodfellas. I don't know how many people today may get that reference, millennials. And I love the soundtrack. I mean, listen, he loves Dean Martin. They paid $500,000 just for the Dean Martin music. Great soundtrack. You get Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. I mean, that was when swing music came back. Remember the yes. Gap commercial? That Jump, Jive, and Whale, Louis Prima. I remember Reservoir Lounge in Toronto. Like, all of a sudden, everyone's doing swing music. It was amazing that John Favreau picks out Heather Graham at a bar, and they both just start swinging. I mean, that's an incredible... Scene. Well, I first of all, I did not pick up on those references when I first watched it as a kid. So you're right about that. That was actually in, in this viewing, I, I finally clicked for me. Oh, good fellas. <laughs> so that was a nice added bonus to watch yeah. it at, at this stage of my life. But another great moment you're talking about, you know, there's it's really a snapshot. It, it, I say it holds up, it certainly does on an emotional level, but sure, but from the from the cultural perspective, yeah, the neo swing movement of the <laughs> mid-90s, which did not last very long, but yeah. No, I was supposed to say six months, right? It's, out. Done. It just happened to be when they filmed this movie, and it's so perfect. You've got the big bad voodoo daddy in the outfits, and, <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, you think about You squirrel. and me in the bottle makes three tonight. I mean, you and song. me in the bottle makes three tonight. <laughs> and you think about squirrel nut zippers 
and Brian Setzer. Bowling shirts. Yeah, Brian Bowling Setzer. Shirts. That's right. All these other fans of the time that are really forgotten dustbins of history. But you know this. This is something else, and I was watching it with Laura, my 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 new abu, uh, and, and and that was also great because she had never seen it before, yeah. and um, she loved the movie. She lives in L.A., so we were, we watched part of it in Vegas, sitting in our room in Vegas. We watched up to the Vegas part. Then mm-hmm. when we got back to L.A., we watched the rest of the film, and I was like, the Dresden's still there in Los Feliz. Yeah. I've been there. You know, it's so cool to see these old L.A. Twenty five years ago, a lot of those places are still around. But the she, this is what Laura picked up on, the magical realism of the film. Uh, there's a scene early on oh, where, yeah. where, where where Sean's talking. You know, he's he's pressing the messages. He's he's OCD about checking his messages right. to see if his ex girlfriend had called him back, and he's checking the messages. And the message machine, of course, beeps. You have zero new messages, and then the machine keeps talking to John Favreau. You know, when are you going to get over her, Mikey? You know, she left you six months ago. You know, the machine is that, of course, is totally surreal, right? Mm-hmm. The machine doesn't talk to you, and and at the time, I was like. That is such an odd touch for this movie, which is very much grounded in reality, to have this very odd scene of the of the machine talking back. But there are other elements throughout the movie that tie into this magical realism. And I would say another one is the swing dancing scene that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because here you have John Favreau. You know, this guy's a, kind of a putz. He's not coordinated, not athletic. He's very shy, very nervous. Heather Graham, this beautiful girl, he finally musters up the courage to talk to her. And she asks him to dance. You know, she's got the 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 pinup girl look going, the neo swing thing. He's not into that at all. They start swing dancing, and of course, it's very awkward at first. But then Favreau busts into all these incredible moves, like an expert. You know, you know, a celebrity. What, what's that show? So you think you can dance? Like, yeah. he, like he's one of the instructors, not one of the celebrities, not right. Sean Spicer. He's teaching Sean Spicer. <laughs> you know, he's that good at swing dancing. And as a movie goer, you're like, okay, well, this is completely ridiculous. How the hell? Would he go from zero to hero like that? But that's right. another one of those touches where you think back and you go, yeah, there are some nice nice moments that, that Lyman, I guess, I don't know if it's in the script or if the director, Doug Lyman, added these, but they are they, they do give a, a, a sheen of, of uh, that the magical realism that um, I didn't remember, frankly, from the first time I watched it. Yeah, Bill Simmons and his podcast, they did it on the rewatchables. And they talked about the fact Favreau originally wanted to direct it. Like Stallone with Rocky, he's like, no, this is my script. I'm going to direct it. Studio said no, but he still was really involved. Apparently, him and Lyman butted heads in the editing process. Like Favreau had storyboarded a lot of these scenes. You know, this is how I want to do it. And now, of course, he's like one of the top five most important directors in America with The Mandalorian, Iron Man. Like, you know, he started that whole movement, The Lion King. I mean, it's crazy where you go, wait, John Favreau back then, that's the same guy from Swingers. And as they point on the podcast, like, who would be friends with Mikey he's this annoying nerdy guy and like it's a guy he's such a drag he's always talking about his ex he brings nothing to the table but I'm with you either you're Mikey or you're Trent and I clearly was Mikey neurotic self-loathing can't get over this lost love but Vince Vaughn to me it's a star making performance as Trent like you said he's got so much charisma that motor mouth delivery at the time it was it was unique. Like, who is this guy? What is he doing? And he's so funny. That rapid fire delivery. Who's the big winner? Mikey's the big winner. I mean, it's just, everything about his performance. Like, oh, wow, Vince Vaughn. Even when they're playing video games. Again, a, a late mid-90s relic. I'm going to make Gretzky's head bleed. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, and a lot of this was, these guys were bros. These, they were buddies. And let's just make a movie about our lives and write it in the script. Faber wrote the script in two weeks. His dad gave him a screenwriting program. 
And you're right. It's one of those great bromances. It very much predates Apatow. It's a great call by you. This is a movie Judd Apatow would have made if he could have made Swingers in 1996 because it has those elements to it. How about the guy who plays Sue, which I love? Johnny Cash. His dad loved Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. That guy's done nothing. Look that guy. He's done nothing since then. Patrick Van Horn. I did look him up. I'm like, well, maybe he's related to Keith Van Horn. So (laughs) nice. The next. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's on the dole from his older brother or something. But no, Patrick Van Horn really has not done much. The guy's uh, just turned fifty. He just turned fifty-one last week. Happy birthday, Patrick Van Horn. He's terrific as Sue. Yeah, terrific. And you think like, uh, you know, Ron Livingston. Here's a guy. This is his first breakout role. Two years later, he's starring in Office Space, and his career's taken off. Right. But Patrick Van Horn. You know, he had uh, Three to Tango in 99 with Nev Campbell and Matthew Perry. Devious Beings, never heard of that, 2002. Brutal. Four Christmases, 2008, which, you know, Fawn and Favreau are also in. So they're kind of, all right, we're feeling a little bad for Patrick over here. You know, give Sue some love. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe some look, some people just decide, hey, I had my fun. He'll always be in Swingers. He can yeah. show every girl he's dating for the rest of his life, that's me, that's Sue. You know, I, I, I'm the guy who breaks out the gat. In the parking lot, you want to go? <laughs> Haven't you seen House Boys of Pain in the Hood? Is coming at us. Yeah. <laughs> another reference to another movie. Haven't you seen Boys in the Hood? Now one of us is going to get shot. Right, look, right. Another great reference. I mean, this is look. This is one of those tiny films that somehow got made. Actually, thanks to uh, Mr. Harvey Weinstein, it is a Miramax picture. Mm-hmm. We have him to thank for this, but thank God it's out there because uh, it, it really, it really is one of those movies that I think. I thought, look, Laura loved it. I mean, I think guys and girls can both relate to this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful film. There's a lot of heart, so many yeah. great lines, a lot of comedy. And uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Five Maple Leafs. I love it. I love it. Five Maple Leafs going off the board. It only grossed five million at the box office, but then found a home on home video. Blockbuster. It was one of those picks to click. Word of mouth started getting in there. And honestly, a touchstone for these guys. They made Made, which in many ways was a sequel to Swingers, which I liked a lot. Not a lot of people, I think, liked Made or saw it as much. But again, Vince Vaughn doing an annoying, acerbic, obnoxious guy. Peter Falk, your guy is great in the movie Made. But I, I like your point about the heart, because it's not just a bunch of one-liners. It's not just about a bunch of bros wearing bowling shirts and they admire Sinatra and Dean Martin and the Rat Pack in Vegas. There's also a lot of heart. I mean, that scene where Livingston says, he goes, you know, day by day, the hurt gets a little less. And then one day you miss the hurt because you live with it so long. I think that's one of the most perceptive lines I've ever heard about heartbreak. Isn't it? I, yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the finale, and I don't want to spoil it, but I, I, lo- I love that, that, that Heather Graham picks up on the uh, Groucho Mark reference, You Bet yeah. Your Life. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I fantasize about this too. I mean, these are obviously, again, like the fantasies that you have that, you know, yeah. some girl's going to appreciate the Marx Brothers. You know, I mean, that's like for me, it, it speaks to me very personally. Um, so I'm going to always love it for that reason. But yes, you, you know, this is something everyone can enjoy. And I'm, I'm going to now rewatch Go, which is Doug Lyman's yeah. follow up. Sarah I remember, Polly. Yeah, I remember liking that movie a lot. Uh, Sarah Polly, Jay Moore, Katie Holmes. <laughs> Jeez. And, and, and so that's going to be maybe my, my, my review next week. But uh, okay. who knows? My, my life is a little, little messy right now, and uh, I may not get around to it. But I'll now listen. Enjoy uh, Minneapolis and terrific review of Swingers. I hope people, where did you watch it, by the way? Is it Netflix? Is it Amazon Prime? I had to rent this thing, baby. I know you don't like okay. spending money, but I dropped $3.99. <laughs> $3.99 on Amazon Prime. Okay, Amazon Prime 399, watch Swingers. As always, follow him on Twitter and Instagram, at Scott Rogowski. Pay the money. Your money, you don't even know it. Thanks, Rex. It's worth it. Your money, baby.
Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks so much to Rags. He always brings the heat. Follow him, like I said, Twitter and Instagram. Mount Rushmore of Oliver Stone movies. So there's a lot. Uh, also, the book makes mention of the fact he co-wrote Conan the Barbarian. Bet you didn't know that about Oliver Stone. 1982. He said Schwarzenegger had instant charisma. No doubt about it. This guy was going to be a star. Also wrote Year of the Dragon, which didn't do well. 1985, Michael Cimino film. But if you go through the whole thing, Midnight Express, The Hand, Conan, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Salvador, Platoon, that's just what his book covers. If you look at Oliver Stone's career, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, Nixon, Avida. He wrote Avida. U-Turn, Any Given Sunday, Alexander. Here's where the bombs come. Alexander, World Trade Center, W, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, Never Make a Sequel. Come on. Savages and Snowden. Like, I don't think his last six movies are particularly good. And those are the feature films. And then, of course, the documentaries as well. So My Mount Rushmore Platoon, Probably my favorite war film. I've seen it, I don't know, a dozen times. I was eight when I was seeing it. My brother and my, uh, my cousins, we all love Platoon. Acting out Platoon. Um, so that is a no-brainer for me. Like I said, any given Sunday, it's got some kitsch appeal. Maybe just the fact I like football, but I thought it was kinetic. I love Pacino's inch-by-inch inch speech. Great supporting cast. James Woods, as big of a pain in the ass as he was in Salvador. Oliver Stone still cast him again years later to be in the movie. He's really funny. Um, Cameron Diaz is fine. Jamie Foxx, terrific. Stephen Willie Beeman, the, the swagger that he brings to that role. Lawrence Taylor's great. I mean, yeah, eyeball falling out of a guy's eye, probably not going to happen. But yeah, I'm going with any given Sunday. You think I'm going to go JFK, don't you? Well, I love Nixon. I think Oliver Stone does an amazing job with Nixon showing his paranoia, his deceit. Yes, it's three plus hours. Don't know if I'd watch it again. I've probably seen it twice. But that scene where um, Anthony Hopkins as Nixon looks at a picture of JFK and says, when they see you, that's what they want to see. When they see me, they see what they are. America corrupted. The fact that it's Oliver Stone doing Nixon and Anthony Hopkins playing Nixon, one of the great Welsh actors, Mrs. Nixon's finished. Also excellent as Joan Allen. I thought she was tremendous playing Pat Nixon. So I'm going with Nixon. I got Any Given Sunday Platoon. Now, I want to go Scarface, but he only wrote that. So you know what? I'm going to say he's got to do at least two of the three. They got to be movies that he produced and directed. Natural Born Killers. About as vivid as it gets. What a visceral joyride. If you watch... The different genres he's matching up. It's a really wild movie. I mean, just wild look at ultra-violence. America's fascination with violence. It's very satirical. Rodney Dangerfield at one point playing an abusive father with a laugh track. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Tommy Lee Jones, Sadistic Warden. Robert Denny Jr. is hilarious as this gonzo journalist. Amazing soundtrack, K7. Uh, Natural Born Killers. Owen Gleiberman loves that movie. God, he called the best picture in 1994. That's my Mount Rushmore of Oliver Stone. Honorable mention is Scarface, which he wrote, but you got to be writing, directing, producing. Two of those three. So I'm going to go with Platoon. I'm going with Natural Born Killers. I'm going with Any Given Sunday. I'm going with Nixon. Joe, give us some love to Born on the Fourth of July. I hate Tom Cruise. That's why I didn't put it in there. Maybe you're going to go JFK. What do we got? I, you know, I still have not seen Born on the Fourth of July. It's a big blind spot that I have. I apologize. I need to get around to it, but I am going to go JFK um, Donald Sutherland, Gary Oldman, just just the way he's able to blend fact and fiction in that movie in such an interesting way. John Candy in that movie. Yes, John uh, Candy's great. Oh, yeah, and he's doing a, a different John Candy that, at least uh, to my knowledge, I hadn't seen before Before that. You know what I mean? Um, I will go Platoon and you know how his experiences in Vietnam influenced the making and the writing of that movie. I'm going to agree with you on Natural Born Killers. Yeah. You ain't seen nothing yet. And then it's tough. I will go Wall Street, though. I will go Wall Street and just it, it, just such a 
look at Wall Street at that time and how, as you mentioned, alluded to earlier, how cocaine induced it was, the money, the greed, all of that. But I have a question for you. What do you think of um, The Doors? His 1991 movie, The Doors. Never got through it. You know, I'm not a huge uh, Jim Morrison, The Doors fan. I mean, I like a couple of songs naturally break on through uh, the other side, obviously. But uh, I never got through it. I remember it being very hallucinogenic. I mean, I was 13 years old watching it. And probably it was just way too much drugs for me. And I just never done drugs. So I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. But yeah, I've never gotten through The Doors. Right. Yeah, I feel I feel I liked it growing up as a kid. But uh, I don't know, the older I got, the more and more I thought Jim Morrison was just kind of pretentious. So I, I didn't put that on. But I, I was curious to hear your take on it. And I will give an honorable mention to talk radio, too. Yeah, you know, it's a good point. He, when he was talking with Feinberg, again, check that out, the Hollywood Reporter. He did mention talk radio because I, I'm actually kind of proud of that movie, which did not get a lot of love. And he, he was honest. He goes, listen, so many movies have done well. Some movies have been bombs. Like Alexander got absolutely destroyed. Like, do, do yourself a favor. If you want to read a movie getting roasted, go on Rotten Tomatoes sometime. Read the reviews for Alexander. But uh, Talk Radio, he mentioned, is an underrated movie. I, I'm with you on that, actually, Joe. It's, it's a pretty good movie. I, I, it doesn't hold up that well. Like, some of the times where Eric Bogosian, if you don't know the story, he plays this talk show host. He's like a Howard Stern-type shock jock whose life is being threatened. Some of the dialogue is a little cheesy. He starts calling guys pinhead. It's, it's just, it's not, you know, it's not strong enough. I, I wish it was like a serious talk show radio guy, S-I-R-I-U-S, not serious, like a serious person. Because then he could actually be profane and like insulting people but I like the premise and I like the way he shot it it's very claustrophobic Alec Baldwin plays the boss in the movie I like the idea of like the shock jock in over his head I, it's a good mention Joe I don't think it's Mount Rushmore I agree with you but that's definitely a, a honorable mention I'm not as crazy about Wall Street as other people probably a little bit dated now but yeah talk radio Eric Bogosian really good performance Oh yeah, he he's fantastic on it, and and it's a pretty good take, I think. You know, coming up in radio uh, of that whole life and the way it operates. So yeah, I, I would I would give that an honorable mention. But my four are Natural Born Killers, Platoon, Wall Street, and JFK. All right there it is. So pretty good. I, listen, JFK, I didn't include it, but you're right. I mean, that's a monumental movie. I mean, that's got to be. When he dies, the obituary is going to be you know, the director of JFK. I mean, literally, he's changing history. And I think you said it perfectly. He blended fact and fiction. Like, here's stuff that actually happened. Everyone knows that. Now, here's going to be my interpretation. And if you actually think it's a lone gunman, you think, you know, Oswald did this by himself, you're crazy because of A, B, and C. And I mean, just like I said, it was a, such a monumental film. I mean, article after article, Time Magazine, CNN's doing stories. You know, who is Jim Garrison? Who is this prosecutor? Is the movie factual? Is it not factual? Is it true? Is it not true? I mean, I, I agree that JFK is one of those works that you go, geez, I don't know how the hell he pulled it off because that's a, a really big time, big time movie. And like you said, great cast as well. All right, thanks as much. Uh, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, please go to Cinephile Pod. Admin S. Ferk, you can always hit us up. Appreciate all your thoughts, and we'll be back with plenty more. Like I said, hopefully, uh, I go to Danbury, Connecticut, and I watch Tenet, and we're going to talk with Chris Nolan's new movie. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.